Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by the official Star Trek Discovery Starships Collection. All new Starships in a larger size format and officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and receive the USS Shenzhou for only $9.95 with free shipping. For details, visit eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. Mission Log a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 300. Whispers. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. Or am I? And I'm John Champion. (gasps) Or am you? Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, examining it for ideas and ideals, and seeing whether the whole thing holds up today. This week, Whispers. The one where everyone on DS9 is gaslighting Miles. (sighs) Or am they? I've got trivia coming up in a bit, but first... But first... I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log, or Will Am. (laughs) Will I Am is doing the show? Will I Am is actually going to be on this week's episode of Mission Log. What? What? I don't think he says what, what, by the way. What does the I stand for? Uh, I think it's it's short for Iam. Mm, okay. I, I don't. I don't really know, but we can ask him next week when he's he's cool. not going to be on Mission Log. By the way, that's not going to. I would love it if that would happen. Oh, I would love bad. to talk to Will. I am. In the meantime, though, uh, you know, I'll talk to you. You'll talk to me. And hey, hey, I sense you might be talking a little trivia. Time for trivia. This week's episode whispers. The story is by Paul Coyle. Now, Paul's pro-writing credits go back to the 1970s with shows like Barnaby Jones and Chips. But prior to that, he had actually submitted a story for Star Trek, the animated series. It didn't sell, but he did contribute a few uncredited rewrites for Next Gen and finally gets a credit for this episode. He has one more coming on Voyager. The teleplay is credited to Paul Coyle and Michael Piller. Now, Michael Piller and James Crocker were the two champions of the original pitch, which was a bit different, of course. 
In it, Miles O'Brien was still front and center, but nobody on DS9 knew him, and he would discover he was actually working on the Enterprise. Wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff ensues to get everyone back on track. The story didn't break easily, though, and when the final plot was assessed, the teleplay duty was handed back to Paul with great input from Michael. Now, there are a lot of pop culture influences here. We'll get to some of those in our discussion, but one I had not heard of that Paul mentions is the Parallax View, in which Warren Beatty plays a reporter investigating an assassination and comes up against a huge conspiracy that has a hand in just about every event in history. That movie came out in 1974. This episode was directed by Les Landau. Les, of course, has been around a lot. He started on Next Gen and racked up nearly three dozen director credits there. And most recently in our DS9 rewatched, we discussed his episode, Sanctuary. The USS Mekong can the Mekong, again, sticking with the river naming convention. The mm-hmm. Mekong is a river in Southwest Asia and runs through many countries, China to Vietnam, Don't get too attached to this one, though. We'll see it a few more times, but not much more. All those arriving vessels, there's a a shot on Miles' computer screen. Now, you and I know that they always love to slip in some jokes or old references in the on-screen graphics. Uh, There's the Yorktown on this one. There's the Galileo. So, so many more. And there's the C-57D. You know what that's from? I do not. That would be Forbidden Planet. Oh. That is the spaceship from Forbidden Planet. All yeah. right. And you may have noticed uh, there's a non-accidental use of the word replicant in here. That was uh, Paul Coyle's choice very specifically to use that rather than clone or android or something else. Replicant, of course, a reference to Blade Runner by Philip K. Dick. Now, let's talk about guest stars. One of the alien piratas we meet is played by Philip Lestrange. He doesn't have a huge resume, but he did score some recurring gigs on The Doctors early in his career and then Law & Order in the late 90s and 2000s. Ensign DeCurtis is played by Todd Waring. One of his earliest gigs was a series regular on The Lucy Arnaz Show, which unfortunately did not make it past six episodes. He picked up many guest roles, though, and recurring roles on Nothing in Common and NYPD Blue, We will catch him again in a different role on a later episode of DS9. And finally, we welcome back Susan Bay, who we saw as an admiral in the episode past prologue. You may remember that her Trek connection runs deep as the wife of the late Leonard Nimoy. Free prologue. John is going to read the recap now. Or are he? Prologue. By himself in the Rio Grande, Chief O'Brien is heading to the Parada system, drinking double-strong, double-sweet coffee, and recording a mysterious log entry. He thinks he won't be alive much longer, and he thinks some unknown they will be after him before he can reach the Paradas and warn them about something. It all started when things were amiss for him on DS9. Flashback. Miles wakes up, Keiko's not in bed. She's up super early having breakfast with Molly, who doesn't want anything to do with her dad. Keiko's a little suspicious, too, asking what Miles was up to with the Paradas. He says they were training him in their security measures for an upcoming peace conference. Keiko's ready to go and take Molly with her at 5.30 in the morning, which 
seems odd to Miles. He starts his day in the security office, where Odo isn't to be found, but Ensign New Guy De Curtis is there, working deep in one of the technical systems. He says Cisco asked him to do it, and Miles says he'll have to go to the source to confirm it. Out on the promenade, Miles spots Cisco talking to Keiko. Act 1. Present day. Miles is aware that another runabout, the Mekong, is pursuing him, but it won't catch up, so he records more of his log entry, which takes us to the flashback again. The chief doesn't know why Sisko and Keiko were talking, but at this point, Dr. Bashir confronts him about getting his annual physical, and he's very pushy about the whole thing. He's not going to get out of it, though. Not when Commander Sisko shows up and insists that it be done sooner rather than later. At the moment, though, Sisko needs an update on the paradas. O'Brien explains that they're a little paranoid, but he's been working on all their security protocols and doesn't foresee any problems. Should be pretty routine. Just one oddity. They can smell bad, if they're made fearful. Some kind of skin reaction. Sisko says he'll just have to make sure that doesn't happen. Oh, and one more assignment. The upper pylons of the station are all out of whack and will need the chief's attention. O'Brien objects that he just checked them and they were fine, but Sisko says no, something's wrong, and he'll have to get to the bottom of it. After his physical. Fine. But one thing before he goes. What was that conversation the commander was having with Keiko earlier? Oh, nothing. Just some stuff about Jake and his grades. Seeing Dr. Bashir, O'Brien is annoyed and not hiding it, so he's normal. But Julian keeps needling his colleague, his friend, seemingly on purpose with more and more invasive questions. When he asks how O'Brien's parents are doing, Miles is surprised that the doctor doesn't remember that his mother died two years ago and that his father remarried. Oh yeah, that. Now Julian remembers. Miles is done with it all, demands to know why it's all taking so long, even a bit fearful that everyone around him is acting weird because maybe there is something wrong with him. Bashir says, don't worry, you're fine. In fact, he's getting a clean bill of health. Heading to work at long last, Miles is interrupted by Jake, who needs some engineering help on a science project. He's glad to help, especially if it will get Jake's grades up, to which Jake replies that his grades are great. Act 2. In those pylons, Miles recalls in his personal log, the repairs he had made were working correctly, so some new problem had been introduced, perhaps something to distract him from the security preparations with the paradas. He finds Ensign to Curtis again, giving a once-over to the security systems on the quarters reserved for the paradas. Miles asks to see the quarters, but they are on strict lockdown, and only Kira has the access code. Very well. Miles calls for Kira, but he's overruled by Sisko, who says no. He needs to get back to work on the pylons. As Miles steps away, though, presumably out of sight, he looks back to see DeCurtis entering the code himself and stepping into the room. Back out in the promenade, Jake stops O'Brien again, this time holding a small piece of equipment. He wants to know if it's the right kind of inverter for a subspace transceiver, the thing for his science project. Miles is pretty surprised to see it. It's definitely an older style. Jake says he replicated it from an old file. Miles says to come by later so they can work on it, 
but when he asks if anything weird has been going on, he's interrupted by Kira. Commander Sisko is asking for Jake, she says. So that conversation is a dead end. And how about you, Chief? Kira wants to know. Everything okay? All under control, he says. Back in the pylons, working alone, we hear O'Brien's future log entry again. He's found a crack in the RF power conduit, which apparently had to have been made deliberately. After all the work, Miles returns home to his quarters. He tells Keiko that Jake will be coming by later, but she says she heard from Commander Sisko, who says Jake isn't feeling well. And where's Molly? She's spending the night at a friend's place. So that leaves Miles and Keiko alone, and Miles turns the thermostat up to amorous. But Keiko isn't exactly responsive. She's not in the mood, which leaves dinner as the most action Miles will get tonight. On the table, it's fricado stew, which Keiko hates, but it's a gesture from Miles, who's been away for so long. She's not eating any, but she watches patiently as Miles almost, but doesn't actually take a bite. They stare at each other for a moment, until Miles says he's going to lay down. In the log entry, though, we hear O'Brien say it was this moment when he realized this was not his Keiko. Act 3. So Miles stays up all night, searching computer files for anything at all that might give him a clue as to what's going on, why everyone is so weird and why Keiko is not Keiko. Sensors don't reveal anything, arrival logs don't either. Finally, he settles on listening to log entries for the time that he was gone, but a funny thing happens. All the logs are restricted starting the day he got back. And he has a security clearance, supposedly. That morning, the chief shows up early for work, heads right to one of the computers and ops, and starts messing with security protocols, aware enough that everything has been reset to make it obvious if anyone like him was tampering with it. Time to sneak around. Miles is sure all of his logs have been read by everyone, that he's being watched. Odo has been away for a while, but he's back now, and Miles confides in him. Nobody is who they seem to be. Maybe Jake. And that's about it. Odo says to keep cool for now. He'll look into it and let him know what he finds. But Miles can't leave well enough alone. He grabs some kind of device that he hides on himself, then heads to Quark's, where he has a little run-in with the bar owner. Ready for a rematch with Bashir? No. So, what about the Paradas? Quark is pushing for information, but Miles isn't interested. Then he's summoned by Odo. In the security office, Odo asks about the Paradin rebels. Miles only knows a little, but it seems secret messages have been going out to them which would violate the whole agreement that they had in the first place. Miles is adamant that the peace talks be called off. Odo says that might be premature, which then raises Miles' suspicions to Eleven. In walk Kira and Sisko armed, and Miles makes his escape by detonating whatever little device he picked up earlier— Phaser in hand, he escapes down a corridor. Act 4. He's a man on the run now, and the station is working against him. Force fields go into place, but O'Brien cleverly circumvents them. He escapes into some ductwork, making his way into a cargo bay where he can beam himself to the Rio Grande. The runabout, not the river. Sisko demands he come back, but O'Brien is a step ahead. 
Mooring clamps are disengaged. Tractor beam is disabled. The station fires as Miles slips away, but the runabout shields hold up enough to get the shuttle and its passenger into the wormhole. Act 5. We've caught up to where we started. Miles in the Rio Grande has a head start on those in pursuit. They'll catch up when he drops out of warp, but he can use that to his advantage, finding a safe hiding spot. The best bet is Parada 4, the system's largest planet, surrounded by seven moons. With the clock ticking, the Rio Grande goes silent to evade the runabout Mekong until it gives up and flies over to Parada 2. The Rio Grande computer detects that three people have beamed from the Mekong to the surface of Parada 2, and Miles decides to follow suit. Once he beams down, the chief finds himself in a rocky corridor faced with a door. Phaser pulled, he opens the door to find Sisko, Kira, and two Paradins. He tells them to put down their weapons, which they do, but one of the Paradins explains that everything he needs to know is behind the next door. More than a little agitated, Miles isn't too keen on following suggestions, so the Paradin goes for the door, and another one shoots, wounding Miles. Fortunately, behind that door was Dr. Bashir, who can come out and tend to his patient, leaving the patient he was just treating, Miles. With one Miles wounded by Phaser, there's another one rising up from the examination table behind that second door. So who's the real one? Not the one we've been following. From the start, fake Miles was a replicant, programmed by a Paradin faction to disrupt, maybe even kill someone at the peace talks. The crew on DS9 knew something was up, but they didn't know where the real Chief O'Brien was. All they could do was distract the replicant until they got to the bottom of it all. So why was the replicant leaving DS9 and heading back to the Parada system? If Miles knows anything about himself, he suspects it was to warn the others about something wrong at the station. Sisko says he was trying to be a hero. As a replicant lays dying, he tells the real Miles to tell Keiko, I love... And then he's gone. The end. You know what he loves. What does he love? Coffee. Jamaican blend. He loves coffee. Double strong, <laughs> double sweet. Any time of day. Mm-hmm. Any time of day. Daytime, nighttime, after 3? Absolutely. Tell Keiko, oh, yeah. I love coffee after 3 p.m. <laughs> That's Pretty sure. Oh, that would have been such the perfect ending to wouldn't this it? episode. It would have made yeah. the last episode in this episode basically part one and part two, though, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with that. Hey, I got a question for you really quickly. You said that it was a Paradin faction, but didn't... I thought we were actually with the Paradin rebels, because the Paradin rebels said the government had actually gotten much better with their replicant technology. Right. Well, I, I'm assuming that, that since we're talking about Paradins as a whole, mm -hmm. like all, all those Paradins, it would be sort of like saying all those humans, all those earthlings. Well, there, there's a faction, there's a group, there's some of those humans who want to do this thing. Some of them don't. There's also some rebels. It's a little, uh, it's a little blurry on exactly who's who. We just know they kind of look like fish. See, I didn't think I didn't think it was blurry at all. Honestly, really? I thought the I thought the Paradin government had said, "Yeah, we will totally have conversations with the Paradin rebels." Mm -hmm. And so the Paradin rebels acted in good faith, and then the Paradin government was like, "Secretly, we've replaced the Miles O'Brien they normally use with <laughs> with Uban Folgers crystals, <laughs> right?" Yeah. Uh, well, okay, yeah. Folgers crystals if you want to, sure. Yeah. But I really thought the government was basically trying to just get the drop on the rebels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they're they're terrible. 
Uh, you know, no matter how you slice them, those paradins. And I'm not saying slice just because they look like fish. I'm just saying that uh, that they're they're terrible. Hey, uh, did you notice there was a shout out to the Bolians? No. Yes, yes. There's a shout out to the Bolians. It's one of the ships that came through. I'm picturing a freighter just full of like clippers and styling gel. Mm. That's what they do, man. That is that is who they are. Yeah. Um, it, this is one of those episodes that I like where, you know, we watch it several times of the show. You kind of go back and, and even though you know the, the, the gimmick at the end, you know the twist at the end, it's fun to go back and watch the early clues. And of course, Keiko and her first scene is not quite right. You're trying to piece together why that is. I thought the, the first scene with Cisco was really great. Because they, they played it totally straight. They're having a normal conversation. O'Brien leaves. Cisco picks up a pad. And then he just gives this menacing look at the door. And then goes back to his pad. I, I thought that was such a nice bit of direction and a nice bit of acting there. It was really cool to, to sort of keep leaving the hints for the audience. Cisco is, um, you're right, he's, he's sort of better. He's more subtle in a way. But he needs mm-hmm. to learn to think on his feet better. He shouldn't have said, oh, it's about Jake. Because oh, Jake yeah. now, yeah, Jake yeah. now is a wild card, and if you know anything about like you know pulling off something like this, I means Cisco now has to kill Jake, <laughs> right, right? Right. If you know anything about spy movies, right. yeah, Jake yeah. is a loose Precisely. end now, and Cisco's going to have to kill him if this whole thing's going to work. And it's really sad right. because I was kind of starting to like Jake, and I don't know what Nog is going to do without him. Yeah. That. Oh, that's <sighs> sad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Faux Miles, when he's leaving the doctor's office, I don't know if you noticed, uh, mm-hmm. we could not see his backside. He no. has a robe that actually laces all the way up, and I'm guessing it's got a modesty panel or something. <laughs> right. I'm wondering yeah. then, does, does, does Miles keep, I'm sorry, does Bashir keep uh, separate robes for the women? Because remember a couple of episodes ago, uh, Dax was like, yeah, he stole my clothes and I had to walk in a robe that exposed my backside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah. Miles, he, you know, his backside is fully covered. By the doctor's robe, which has like uh-huh. 27, 28 ties on the back of it, it looks like. It's like, it's almost the kind of thing that he could wear to like a Ren fair. I mean, it's like <laughs> a whole, it's like heavy material and, yeah. and ties. and Yeah. 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 Purple mm. too, because, you know, if Miles is bleeding, you don't want that to show up. Right. Right. <laughs> so it's good that yeah. that was there. Uh, another question, as long as we're talking about what well, we're not anymore. We were talking about Jake a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Is he like hanging out with that packlet, or are they just both sitting at the same table? That that's a long shot of him in that packlet. And that packlet's just he looks right at home, and really Jake should know better. He's a bit more zen than I think of packlets being. Mm-hmm. He's just kind of like you know, it's like it's like he's 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 contemplating the clouds that he can't see because he's on a space station for crying out. Right, loud. right. Right. And he, he had Jake sat there any longer. That pack that would probably want that little piece of equipment that Jake has. And yeah, the whole other story, whole other story. Hey, it's time for uh, a little food talk. Okay. Uh, if you'll indulge me. Okay. So uh, fricado stew. Mm-hmm. First of all, I, I think the use of that term is a little bit redundant. Because fricado is the uh, it is the cooking style. You, you could have like a veal fricado. You could have a beef fricado. Uh, you, you take strips of meat, uh, you lightly fry them, and then you stew them 
Uh, and, and a sauce, it could be, well, it could be ma- many different things, but it's a very old recipe, like 18th century, more popular in the 19th. So fricado stew, just saying, little redundant there, but big fan of uh, endive salad. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, definitely glad to hear about that. And flan for dessert is a whole international table that she's put together there. There's a lot going on. That's true. I want to revisit that really quickly, though. Are you sure that like fricado stew is not like stew made of other stew? <laughs> you think it is? Like so it's a meta stew. Yeah. It's like a meta stew. Three yeah. or four different stews that they had left over, then just like chunked into a pot. And it's one gigantic stew, perhaps. Um, but what we saw on the plate was not a very attractive stew. There, there are some fricadeau, because believe me, I did my research here. There are some fricadeau stews, stews that look absolutely delicious, mm-hmm. uh, really appetizing. That one, uh, I'm sorry, it looked like it came out of a can. See, that looked really good to me. But then again, I grew up on, you know, food that came from a can. So that could be <laughs> okay. why. Uh, right. uh, speaking of which, uh, uh, yeah. Keiko says uh, we should eat uh, while the food is still warm. Uh, and then she pushes up the commands for warm food. Right, Did you notice? Like, right. So the endive salad, uh, not going to be warm. I mean, I uh-huh. you know, I probably haven't had as many endive salads as you have. But <laughs> generally speaking, not a warm thing, I don't think. And she's not made the flan yet, but I don't know that you eat flan warm either but i'm not sure either way but then she's like oh we should eat while it's still hot yeah and then she and then she gets the hot food yeah yeah Yeah. it made no sense to me yeah computer make this warmer computer make this not as warm (laughs) right it was actually a weird thing too where miles was like well the you know the replicator could keep it warm in that it hasn't been replicated yet yeah computer replicate a heat lamp (laughs) how's that how's that (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> that's a great idea. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it is a great scene, though. I, I love everything that leads up to the end of that act because they, they build tension in a way that is right out of the Hitchcock playbook with them looking at each other and the music kind of swelling and, and she's eating something different and you think he's going to take a bite. It's all played really nicely. Uh, so I, I dug that. Now, there's another food thing at the end of that, though, that I didn't quite get. O'Brien says that in his log that Keiko put the stew into the disposal. Mm-hmm. Isn't that just unreplicating? Well, so's eating, isn't it? Well, well, it is. But I'm just thinking, you have a replicator, you right. have transporters, all they do, all those things do all day long is put stuff together, take stuff apart right. at the atomic level. So, like, you could, if you were just a, a crazy person, you could just replicate stews all day and just run them down the garbage disposal like you don't care. And then that's coming out of a chute somewhere off the side of DS9. I'm just thinking that you're on a space station. Uh, apparently some people have replicators, some people don't, you know, you, you just got to put it back in the replicator, unreplicate it, tear it apart again at an atomic level. So somebody else can rebuild it into something else. Yeah. I don't, I don't think anybody really wants to think about that though. No. Okay. No, All I right. think probably what people want to think is, yes, this is going down the disposal. The disposal is of course going back into whatever it is that replicates food, but nobody wants to think about that because okay. you're, cause you don't want to think, you know, this is something that somebody threw up. This is somebody something that chewed and then got spit out again. You don't want to think about the fact that it's recycled food, even or, though, or in a different form, could be like a wedding gift from yeah, oh, the yeah. uh, from the from the registry. Yeah, it could be a guy who beamed onto the station last week <laughs> right. and then beamed back off. But you know, we keep yeah. his we keep his material so that we can make other mm-hmm. guys to beam back onto the ship, or yeah. a nice fricadeau stew, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be. Yeah. 
Um, here's, here's really when Keiko, I think Keiko probably knew that Miles wasn't Miles before he got back. Mm-hmm. Because uh, he says, oh, I think they've been reading my logs. I hope they enjoyed reading the sexy letters to my wife. <laughs> I think yes. Keiko would have gotten the first one of those and gone, yeah. eh, something's wrong here. Yeah, <laughs> not not my Miles. Has he been reading my grandmother's journals again? <laughs> oh, that, wow. Oh, too soon? Always too soon. Always too soon. too soon on that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, honestly, is there something about privacy in the future? She would just get over the idea that people send sexy things and, and that's okay. Because, like, you know, now it's just a scandal no matter what. But here in the 24th century, anybody can read anybody else's journals. Uh, uh, heck, Bashir is just handing out his presumably written journal to Dax. Right. right. So it's just, you know, just well, a part of life. Okay. So here's a question, actually. Why would he be putting sexy letters to his wife in his personal log? Oh, oh well, see, I, I just kind of, I, I think of it as, uh, as a whole bunch of computer files that are all, here's my personal folder. Mm-hmm. And within that, there's the folder of log entries. There's the folder of stuff to Keiko. Is the folder of uh, famous stew recipes, you know, <laughs> that, that just all, sounds, all that, all that's together. That sounds terrible. Okay. <laughs> Still, uh, it, it's funny watching this show 25 years later, or, you know, depending on when you listen to this podcast, uh, 30 or 50 or 150 years later, <laughs> um, that Miles's computer is just comically large. Hmm. Like, you, you know, we've seen many versions of that Starfleet kind of, you know, like like laptop size, but it's a desktop because nobody ever actually picks it up right. and moves it anywhere. Um, I think the one in Picard's desk was a little more sleek. I think even the ones that we saw Data or Jordy use were a little more sleek. This one was really bulky. Like uh, it, it must have had some other use other than just, you know, reading log entries. Well, um, I mean, the machine that I use for the virtual reality stuff that we do is gigantic. Mm-hmm. I'm oh, pretty yeah, sure you can yeah. heat a gymnasium with it as well. So it's possible oh, right. that what he's got there is a combination like, you know, data terminal and gaming rig. Oh, it could be. Oh, yeah. I didn't yeah. think about gaming. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's very <laughs> it's quite true. possible. Yeah. Uh, or the other thing, for some reason, they never went in and replaced all the computers from the Cardassians with their own computers. We've seen that before, right? Where they're like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's still got a bunch of buggy stuff from when the Cardassians were here. It's like, wow, really? And you're still using it. That's that's. That's a winner security idea you got there. <laughs> right, um, right. But yeah, maybe it's just old, you know, Cardassian crap. Yeah, yeah very true. Hey, uh, when Miles is trying to escape everybody on DS9, uh, he, here's a hint to anybody working on Deep Space Nine. If you're looking for Chief O'Brien, just start with the service ducts always because he spends a lot of time there. He knows that place very, very well. And... Um, he has a line, he, he says in his log, had someone or something started to infiltrate all of Starfleet. And it's thought it's a good thing that Miles wasn't there when those bugs crawled all up inside those admirals, because we'd have Rimmick head debris all over again. And now someone owes us another $100. There is something I find unsettling about this episode. I have the feeling... That I have been replaced before as well.
still dive back into whispers in a moment. But first... But first, a word from Eagle Moss, the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection. Hey, no room for full-size starships in your collection? Let Eagle Moss help you out with a collection of smaller ships that will fit conveniently on your desk or on your shelves. Now, these are the ones that are sort of in between, because they're the teeny tiny starships that we started talking about a while ago. And then there are the full-size starships, the life-size starships, if you will, that John was just referencing. These are between those, um, (laughs) closer to the teeny tiny starships, I will tell you. But what we're actually talking about are the XL editions. These are the, um, the Discovery starships are not the teeny tiny ones. They are... Well, I mean, they're they're a decent size. They're officially authorized by CBS Studios. They're made from quality, uh, solid materials, die-cast metal, ABS materials, uh, based on the CG models used in the production of Star Trek Discovery, because, yes, that is what we're talking about, the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection. And as Ken just mentioned, these are good-sized ships. They are not one-to-one scale, though. The USS Shinjo NCC-1227 is nearly eight inches from front to back. Uh, so, yes, again, not one-to-one scale. Uh, it comes with a display base. It comes with a collector's magazine featuring behind-the-scenes info, original design sketches, and a breakdown down of the technology used on board. Now, why is John talking about the Shenzhou? Because that's the first one you're going to get, and you're going to get it at a great cost. Only $9.95 with free shipping for the first ship in the collection. You find out more at eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. Additional models will follow every month, including the iconic USS Discovery, the Europa, the Vulcan Cruiser from the Solcar class. You get that new Klingon Bird of Prey, new ships monthly at an exclusive 20% discount off the standard retail price, also with free shipping. Oh, you know what I couldn't help thinking? It's like, just as the Mekong follows the Rio Grande, (laughs) so too do those ships follow the Shenzhou. Now, subscribers are entitled to free gifts worth over $100, and you can cancel your subscription at any time. Uh, Of course, then you don't get the free gifts. So, well, you decide for yourself. Full details can be found at eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. Now, let's say subscribing is not your thing. That's fine. If you want to pick your individual ships, pick up one at a time if you want to. Uh, There are two ways to do that. You can either go to your local comic book shop to see what they got, or you can go to shop.eaglemoss.com. There, though, you're going to pay the regular price of $54.95 each. But again, to subscribe, go to eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. And as always, a huge thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. So I wonder sometimes if uh, people think the things we do on this show are just things we do for the show. Like, you know, Mm. can this be, is Ken really that end of They Might Be Giants? Is John really that end of food? Uh, True and true. Yeah, you're a fan of eating. I do love food. I I know this. And I've eaten with you before. (laughs) Yeah. This is not an act, people. If you've not eaten with John Champion... (laughs) He likes food, yeah. um, which is not, I mean, you know, fine. I i happen to like a drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I also do. like food. Yeah. I don't think I take quite the uh, quite the same pleasure in food that you do. Sometimes we've had those things together. Oh, we have. That's yeah. true. That's mm-hmm. true. Um, here's a question. Okay. If we had replicators, would we still all eat the same thing every night? Right? The conversation, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, with Miles and Keiko about him having stew and her not having stew. Yeah, 
I assume, you know, that that was about whether or not she was trying to poison him. And again, can we talk about the fact that, you know, they've got a thing in their house that will construct something poisonous to feed to the other person. Sure. I don't, that doesn't seem like the best idea to me, but okay. Assuming nutrition is built into whatever the replicators replicate, would we keep eating the same thing as a group? Like, oh, you're in the mood for, uh, for, uh, whatever stew tonight. Mm-hmm. I'm not in the mood for whatever stew tonight, but you're cooking and, and we're sitting down to eat together. So we're all having that. I would think we would just all line up and be like, yeah, I'm having lasagna. And you'd be like, great, I'm having stew. And I'd be mm-hmm. like, fantastic. I mean, wouldn't it be about the, you know, the sitting down together and spending time together? Or does it have to be about sitting down together and eating the same freaking thing, even if you don't like that thing? <laughs> so, I, well, that's a really good question. I, I, I think that uh, for me, uh, it, it, the, there are certain meals that, that have different types of meanings. So you and I go to a restaurant. We're not going to order the same thing at the restaurant. We're going to, I mean, potentially we could if we both right. really liked that thing. Uh, but sure. we'll order different drinks, different food, different side dishes. If you're with me, probably even different desserts so I can try them all. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but there are other meals that you have where it, it's definitely about the event it's about the camaraderie it's about the tradition and mm-hmm. and I, I wouldn't say that uh i'm super huge on tradition but i i do like history and i i do like the idea that, that there are things that tie us to history and for me food is a big part of that so um you know sitting down for uh, uh like let's say a, a typical american thanksgiving dinner because i don't know what canadians eat for thanksgiving dinner but sitting down for a typical american thanksgiving dinner that's not the kind of thing that i would choose really more than once a year Mm-hmm. But there's something great about having, you know, three or four or 10 or 12 people all sharing those things, particularly if uh, if those dishes come from family recipes. So you would think that Miles sitting down for that fricado, that's probably something that would have been a family recipe. Or maybe he's like me. He's just really into history. And he's like, I wonder what this 18th century dish tastes like. I'm going to have the replicator make it. Cool. That's good. I, I want this from now on. So, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of get it, uh, that, that you could have the, the replicator make whatever that would be sort of a dangerous proposition at some point that would be like me let loose the Bellagio buffet. Um, but you know, why, why not try everything, but then also set aside time to, uh, to have things that, that are, are there for purposes other than just filling your face. Okay. Here's what I'm saying though. So basically, Miles gets to eat what he wants to eat when Keiko's not around, because for some reason, they seem to have fallen into the gender roles, right? Where Keiko is the one who, quote, cooks, end quote, even though she is walking over to the replicator and saying what she wants. Yeah. There's a thing that Miles likes. There's a thing that Keiko doesn't like. So Miles isn't allowed to have it because she's the one who talks to the replicator, not him. Right. Yeah. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because I get what you're saying, too. By the way, we have Canadian friends. You could ask them what they have for Canadian. Canadian Thanksgiving. I, they they uh, could invite I'm, me to Canadian Thanksgiving. Oh, oh yeah, because you'd be there. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll see you in Edmonton next year. That's okay. not going to happen. Edmonton, Winnipeg. One yeah, of the two. We have friends in both places, yeah. actually. We yeah. both have friends in both of those places. Mm-hmm. Come to think of it, they have never invited either of us no, to Thanksgiving, have they? They have not. Yeah. yeah. I'm given to understand they have pretty much the same stuff that we have here. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. That's yeah. what I was told, except they have it in October. 
Hmm, far too early. That's a far challenge. Too early. Yeah. Okay, but but yes, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. There is uh, even when they were doing the breakfast thing, when they were having their just intolerable argument about breakfast uh, right. um, way back on Next Gen. It was it was the same thing where yeah there, there was that sort of uh, ugly rearing of uh, gender roles showing up and uh, when you you just want to say like well Miles can walk over to the replicator and say I want a full English or a full Irish in his case and right. Keiko could walk up to the same exact box on the wall and say I would like you know miso and rice and all is good so um, yeah yeah it, it it's it's a way for them to write business, particularly when you have characters like these. Uh, mm-hmm. But but then you also wonder, well, is it just sort of a convenience thing? If we had that technology, is it just sort of a convenience thing that one person walks up to the replicator and says, uh, make me a meal for everybody here? <laughs> I don't know. I don't either. It yeah. just struck me as odd when I was watching it because he's like, oh, you're not having any. And she's like, of that thing that we both know I hate? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm having a salad because, yeah. you know, I like salad. Yeah. And of course, it was about whether or not she was trying to poison him, which she shouldn't be able to do with the thing that makes food. I, you, could, you could say, uh, and, you know, make me a salad and make frikado, but make sure you put arsenic in the frikado. And the I computer, guess you could. yeah, and the computer's like, "What? Uh, we can't do that." All right, forget it. Make the fricado. Now make me a dose of arsenic. <laughs> and you just, you know, you got it right. Yeah. That's exactly how that would go. Yeah, yeah. like Isaac on the love boat, out of sight. Out of sight. <laughs> so why. I feel like this is an episode where where there aren't sort of deep moral questions necessarily to ask, but there are a lot of fun. Really? You don't think that's why I talked about food for 10 minutes? (laughs) There there are a lot of fun kind of structural and dramatic things to talk about here. One of those is um, the more I watched the episode, I asked myself, what kind of coordination did it take among everybody else on DS9? And for how long to all decide to go all in on this thing with fake miles. Right. Because it's hard to keep a secret anywhere, particularly in an office environment. And these people work together and live around each other 24 seven or sorry, 26 (laughs) seven. So, so there's that 26, nine, sure. 26, nine. Um, And then did they decide at some point that it was a good idea to enlist Jake in that plan? Or is it just by accident? They had to enlist Jake in that plan. Oh, Jake's not in the plan at all. That's why I said earlier, I mean, I was joking, obviously, but that's why I said earlier that Cisco has to kill Jake now, because well, Cisco well, made Jake the um, the loose end. Well, no, er- right? early, early in the episode, yes, Jake is not part of the plan, because Jake doesn't need to be a part of the plan, but right. at a certain point, um, you know, when, when Jake is looking at Miles running and he calls for security... So Jake's right. got to Jake's got to know that Miles is somebody who's wanted by security, and this is not a good guy. That's not letting him in on the plan, though, right? That's just saying you're not to go over there. In fact, if you see him, you call security. Okay. I mean, that's, that's pretty much how that whole yeah. scene goes, right? Yeah, just like much, yeah. I mean, because because Jake probably said, "Dad, I'm going over there," and you know, his dad probably said, "Have you finished your Klingon opera?" 
<laughs> Why don't you have Chief O'Brien over to listen to Klingon Opera with you? I mean, I mean, probably it was just a, I don't think they cut him in on the plan at all. Um, what I actually found myself wondering is, what's the value in letting him keep going? I mean, the only thing I could think of was, you know, give him enough room to see what he tries to do. But we're back to that weird thing again where, uh, like, okay, they got Molly out of the house because they didn't want anything to happen to four-year-old Molly, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, we'll go ahead and put Keiko in danger. We have no idea what he's up to. We have no idea what he's capable of. We have no idea what's going to trigger him. Yeah. But let's ask, you know, the only teacher on Team Space Nine and uh, and the botanist, um, you know, to please go ahead and keep putting yourself in harm's way. I mean, is, is the whole point of letting him do that just to see, you know, what it is he'll eventually do? Yeah. And how long had he been there before sort of the, the, the warning started to pop up. How long had he been back on DS9 before Keiko goes to somebody and says, hey, uh, Miles is acting weird. Mm-hmm. Maybe you guys should also keep an eye on him. Okay, and seriously, what was the moment that they thought that? I was joking before that it was mm-hmm. the sexy letters he was sending, but <laughs> sure. I mean, what was it? Yeah. It can't have just been Molly being weirded out by, by, by Miles. No. Because she's four. I mean, and we know that he can pass a medical examination Mm -hmm. and not to be a jerk, but we know from last week or the week before that Keiko doesn't know Miles nearly as well as she thinks she does. Yeah. So like, when did that whole thing happen? Not that I'm looking to tear it apart. No, no. I'm really not. It's just they introduce so many like, you know, weird little twists and turns and things like that that you do kind of wonder. I'll tell you, honestly, what I found myself wondering is, is what point of view we were watching this from. This was not the general, you know, the general just, we're going to put a camera in the room and record everything that happens. Yeah. I was wondering, were we watching it through, you know, fake Miles' eyes, or were we watching it through the camera's eyes? And I think we probably watching it through fake Miles' eyes, because the eye rolls and the sort of dismissive, dismissive attitude from Keiko at breakfast. Mm-hmm. But then he probably wouldn't have seen that right away, because he would have been like, what was that? Right? <laughs> right. So it's got to be like him actually telling it later. He's, you know, in, in like in us hearing him tell it and seeing it in his mind's eye or whatever, he must be thinking, oh, yeah. And she was even rolling her eyes at me. I'm not going to say that part, but we're going to show that part to the audience. It was hard to tell, like, whose POV we were uh, viewing it from. I, I thought they were kind of trying to split the difference. It's a little bit of that kind of standard TV omniscient camera where it can just sort of be anywhere and show you anything but they're they're showing you just enough to make you and the audience feel weird about it too like like cisco being weirded out by miles during their first meeting or Mm -hmm. or uh molly acting strangely you know it it could be the description that miles faux miles is giving to us in the uh in the logbook but it's also it's presented there for the audience as sort of the 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 neutral observer of all of this. So, but yeah, it, it's it was very cleverly done, and and they gave you just enough uh, that I, I know that you had a problem last week with uh, how much or how little the story was doled out. Though they kind of you know doled it all out. This one they definitely kept you uh, kept you guessing. At least they kept me guessing. But I suppose mm-hmm. we'll get to that in the next segment more. Uh, a couple of other questions before we go to that. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we know that anybody that came back from Parada 2 is <laughs> who went to Parada 2? Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, could be replicants yeah. all around. Yeah. Could be replicants all around. We don't know. I mean, sort of like the uh, Remix Head Debris episode. Cha-ching! <laughs> could be like that episode where it's like, oh, I think everything's fine. They seem fine. But then again, the last time somebody came back from there, not so much. So maybe now it's just like three people who aren't quite, quite right. And then you kind of got like a, um, oh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers thing. Mm-hmm. Where you're down to basically just like one guy who's like, is everybody being weird? Or is it... <laughs> Just me, which we might actually get to that in the next segment as well. Yeah. The other thing that I was wondering, um, tell Keiko I love. Mm -hmm. So did he die before he finished the sentence or did he say what he wanted to say before he died? Yeah. Right. Is that it? Tell tell Keiko I love, period. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that's a great question. Um, Yeah. we, We don't know the complexity of that replicant now, do we? Does he feel... And will he dream of electric fricado stew at the end of his uh, short run? Well, no, because he's dead. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> I think we actually do know. I mean, maybe androids dream of, uh, you know, sheep or stew or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that this one's dreaming days are over. <laughs> With Miles, dead, and Miles, safe and sound, it is time to see what we hear in Whispers. It's part of the episode where we talk about, you know, uh, the whole of the episode. We're not doing the funny little comedy bits. We're not doing the, you know, sort of deep, insightful whatevers. We're doing the part where we talk about, uh, you know, any ideas or ideals or what have you that got presented and uh, deciding for ourselves and anybody who wants to play along whether this episode uh, stands the test of time. Uh, this episode being whispers. Not a single whisper in the episode, John, unless unless you count all the talking that was being done around Miles. Is that what the whispers refers to? Is that what the whispers in the title refers to? Uh, Sure. Okay. I'll go with that. All right. I'll go with that. Yeah. Because just based on the title, honestly, I thought that it was going to be somebody going insane, mm. which uh, mm-hmm. you kind of get that. A little bit. Yeah. But yeah, my assumption is that the whispers that they're talking about are the, are the, are all the uh, talking that's happening when Miles isn't there. But, yeah. you know, it's not just about the title. It's also about the show. And uh, this is the part of the episode where we ask ourselves and each other uh, whether or not this episode holds up as far as we're concerned. And so, as I tend to do, I'll throw that question to you first. Does this episode hold up, sir? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I kind of gave it away uh, a little bit already. Um, but but uh, unequivocally, I will say, yes, this episode holds up. It, it holds up because it, it is a fun, entertaining, well-written bit of of tension and intrigue with some heavy sci-fi themes thrown in there um you know i i mentioned that warren Beatty movie that i have not seen but now i'm kind of intrigued to see it because it, it it's a contemporary story but it has to do with you know conspiracy and the truth not being the truth for that character but there's so much more that i got out of this that it, it really felt like star trek doing a style experiment and doing it really well mm-hmm. you know you and i both enjoyed starship mine that episode is die hard in space and you know what well done star trek he did die hard in space 
extremely well and made it entertaining. And this time around, Star Trek, you did something that was sort of an amalgam uh, of all these other uh, uh, masters of tension and suspense. I mentioned there's a very Hitchcock moment, particularly at that dinner scene. Um, you mentioned Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yes, definitely. That was not far from the minds of the people who wrote this episode. Uh, Manchurian Candidate. Definitely. You know, we, we talked about Star Trek doing Manchurian Candidate already with Geordi. Um, but here we take all of these threads of what make those stories fun and entertaining and kind of evergreen and weave them all together in a new way. Um, and it's rare when you have a show that does, well, in our case here, 300 episodes of, of stories and many hundreds more to go. Uh, you kind of run out of things that are original stories or at least an original telling of a story. Here they got to tell the story in a very original way. We're following the guy who we think is our guy. And... They only reveal to you very well at the tail end of the story that that was not our guy. Um, so I, I can't remember who said it. It might have been Ira Bear or, or Michael Piller, somebody saying they're essentially doing invasion of the body snatchers, but telling it from the point of view of one of the body snatchers, mm. not 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 from the uh, 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 was it Matthew McCarthy. Uh, Michael McCarthy, who, who was the, the star of that, the original version of that movie. Um, that's the one I'm thinking of, not the Leonard Nimoy version. But instead of telling it from the human point of view, running away from those uh, soul-sucking creatures, Kevin McCarthy, my mistake, had to throw that in. Um, instead, they're telling it from, from one of the, the replicants, one of those alien beings. It was a really cool, fun way to show that off. And also, just from a production point of view... Um, this was a great episode for showing off the sets of DS9. Those sets keep getting, you know, from season one to season two, they did some expansion. And I feel like each episode now, they keep finding new ways to show off how cool these sets are. This was a good uh, episode for that as well. So overall, it holds up. It's a lot of fun. It holds up because... It's a blast because it, it is just entertaining and they, they hit all the right notes. Um, but we can talk about whether or not there are morals, meanings, and messages in there. How about you, just in terms of the production? Yes. I think this episode holds up really well. Um, the Mr. X weren't as troublesome in this episode as they were in the alternate. Uh, the only one that bugged me was the one where Quark didn't know which rule of acquisition he was quoting. Yes, wasn't that weird and kind of obvious? That was, that was I mean, that was a very yeah. obvious misdirect to me. They yeah. were just like, oh, okay, now you really think that, you know, Miles is someplace else. Because I really did yeah. think the whole, I thought the whole time, honestly, that what it was about, I thought that he was going to end up having been in a hollow suite or something. And that the whole thing was about trying to get him to punch in his access code. And yeah. so when he punched in his access code on screen and everything didn't change, yeah. I was like, oh. Okay, I have no idea what we're doing now. It's obvious that right. something is weird. It's obvious that something's going on, but I don't know what it is. And I thought that I knew. And the second that he put that in and that wasn't it, I was like, okay, I'm really curious now where we're going. And I'm kind of excited to find out. Um, the Manchurian Candidate you mentioned, Blade Runner you mentioned. Um, there's a little bit of a spoiler alert. We're jumping ahead 20-something years here. There's a bit of discovery here. 
right? The, huh. the Miles Engram is so strong on the Miles Replicant that the Replicant can't mm-hmm. do what the Replicant is supposed to do because there's too much Miles. Yeah. Ash Carter is too much Ash Carter to do what he's supposed to do in Discovery. And I know I just gave away a lot, but I'm not going to give away everything. Uh, if, if you're not watching it, though, I'm assuming that you're just like, you know, predisposed to not watch it. And so maybe you don't care. <laughs> but I mean, that, I mean, it was interesting because I'm watching it the whole time. I'm like, oh, this kind of reminds me of this. This kind of reminds me of this. This kind of reminds me of this. But not in a way that just seemed like they were aping the whole thing. Um, I just recently, well, a few years ago, I read the novel, I Am Legend, and I just recently watched the Vincent Price movie, The Last Man on Earth, which is based oh, sure. on I Am Legend. Um, and it's kind of an interesting thing as well, where our hero, and the book's over 50 years old, the movies are all over 50 years old, so, you know, sue me if I ruin it. I mean, the thing about I Am Legend that's amazing is, in the end, our good guy is the monster. And that's what happened in this episode as well. Um I will say, I don't think there are really messages, morals, meanings kinds of things here, although I did think of one. Okay. Uh, Going back to uh, the episode with Beverly Crusher, the one where she's in the universe that, you know, Wesley accidentally created. And she says, if there's nothing wrong with me, there must be something wrong with the universe. True, perhaps, but generally speaking, it is you. (laughs) Yes, that that is that is a, uh, a definite truth of this episode. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can check out the Roddenberry Podcast Network at podcast.roddenberry.com. Over there, you'll find Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, and The Trek Files. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do that at patreon.com slash missionlog. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next regular episode of Mission Log, oh, oh, it's coming. Paradise. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Tell Keiko, I love... Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.